Welcome to Brio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigg-Hauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Every year, Prio holds its annual Peace Address, inviting distinguished guests to reflect on how to contribute to the creation of a world in which violence is the exception and peace is the norm. In 2021, the Peace Address was given by Jeffrey D. Sachs with the title, Why We Must Avoid a New Cold War and How to Do It. Jeffrey D. Sachs is a world-leading expert in economics and sustainable development and university professor and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Henrik, thank you so much for this kind invitation, and let me uh, salute Prio for your outstanding work, and also let me salute Norway for its outstanding and unique role in the world uh, in showing a path for decency and nice politics and a wonderful prime minister who's I've uh, been lucky uh, to have as a friend for the last uh, 21 years, so I'm very happy to be here on that occasion as well. And I had a wonderful uh, many years working together with former Prime Minister Solberg. Uh, She co-chaired the SDG Advocates Group for UN Secretary General, uh, first Kofi Annan, uh, I'm sorry, first uh, uh, Ban Ki-moon, and then now Antonio Guterres and She has been a uh, wonderful leader of the SDGs uh, on the world stage, and so I'm very grateful for that as well. I'm here uh, because I know that Prio's voice and your voice is so important for peace, and uh, we're not in an altogether easy moment uh, globally, not only because of covid 19, and not only because of the many conflicts, especially in poor countries that are uh, with us today, all exacerbated by the disruptions of COVID, most recently Sudan, the violence in Ethiopia, of course, uh, the recent coup in Guinea, uh, Secretary General Guterres has called this an epidemic of coups recently. So we're in a period of instability and turmoil, to be sure. But we're also in a very unsettling period of uh, increasing tensions between the two major powers in the world today, the United States and China. And I want to spend most of my time speaking about that. Uh, It's almost taken for granted in U.S. media that we already are in a Cold War with China. This is a horribly wrongheaded, naive, and dangerous idea. And we should not slide into such thinking into the now everyday reporting in the U.S. of China as an enemy uh, and the casual uh, 
insults that fly in both directions between two nuclear superpowers who will, to an important extent, uh, determine the fate of the whole world, certainly if they not only fail to cooperate but enter into conflict. And that is not to be dismissed on the path that we're on. I wanted to speak about all of these things uh, even before a headline last week made by somebody that I also have long admired, your former Prime Minister Jens Stoltenberg, now the Secretary General of NATO, who said in remarks last week that NATO's new doctrine that will be unveiled next year will be directed towards China. This is also a terrible idea, actually. Uh, And uh, I wanted to take the occasion to say to Mr. Stoltenberg, directly or indirectly, this is not a good idea. Uh, This is not what NATO should be about. NATO is not an overseas expeditionary force for misguided U.S. adventures. NATO should not have been in Afghanistan for any reason. NATO, in my view, should not exist anymore uh, because it was to defend against the Soviet Union. And as far as I hear, that's no longer with us. And so we should end anachronisms and live in our current time with our current and distinctive challenges and problems. But we should certainly not repurpose NATO for an increasing tension with China. And to think that we could have a NATO doctrine that addresses China, but don't worry, that won't upset anything, is also extraordinarily wrong-headed, in my view. How we address China will affect how China addresses us. And if we want to create an enemy, we will succeed in creating an enemy. That is basically what I want to speak about tonight. So the way to avoid a Cold War, I'll give you the punchline, is to think rationally and to understand our conditions and our circumstances. And for you in Norway and in Europe more generally to understand that the United States is not a rational actor right now. It is a country in a tremendous internal disarray. It will remain so for years to come. It is filled with bad ideas. And one of the ideas is the idea that we are in a confrontation with China. So that's the, uh, that's the purpose of tonight's uh, talk. And I'll start with uh, what we all learn uh, in conflict resolution or in the first day of game theory or in introductory economics, the prisoner's dilemma because it really is an extremely important uh, idea of what can go wrong 
and the fact that economists treat it in a particular way and realists, so-called in international relations, treat it in a particular way is explains a lot of what is wrong with our world. So in The Prisoner's Dilemma, in a dyadic relationship, uh, in a two-party relationship, two people or two countries, uh, we depict a, a set of choices. And here I depict a peaceful set of choices of uh, China and the United States or uh, a path of increasing escalation of tensions, military or otherwise. And of course, these are the payoffs to the United States as the first number and to China as the second number. And the idea of the prisoner's dilemma is that the payoffs or how we find ourselves depend on the choices that are taken. And I will assert for a number of reasons that a peaceful world where both sides de-escalate is a higher set of payoffs than a world in which both sides are engaged in an arms race or increasing tension or even open conflict. So escalate and de-escalate can stand for all sorts of uh, actions. Of course, the worst is open warfare, but also uh, increasing tension, lack of cooperation in international uh, challenges such as climate change, uh, tremendous uh, confrontation inside UN organizations uh, such as WHO, as has occurred uh, during the past year, and so forth. And in a prisoner's dilemma like this, the notion is that the peaceful approach, the cooperative approach, uh, the mutually respectful approach dominates for both parties the conflict. But what also is the case is a temptation, a temptation to let the, quote, softness of the other side induce a aggressive action and thereby gain an advantage. So if China de-escalates, but the United States escalates, maybe we win back Taiwan, or maybe we put China in its place in, uh, in, in uh, international financial relations or some other uh, proposed advantage. And the United States ends up not at five, but at 10, but imposes a very heavy cost on China, which has acted peacefully while the United States has uh, acted uh, in an aggressive manner, for example, in organizing the Quad countries, India, Australia, and Japan, in an increasing confrontation with China. So China sees that de-escalation is potentially quite dangerous. On the other hand, of course, if the United States cooperates but China is tough, then the United States ends up losing. We lose face, we lose global leadership, we lose our place in Asia. We end up not at five, but at minus five, and China becomes the new hegemonic power, the great fear of the United States, that we are soft and China continues to build its military, and therefore we end up uh, in uh, a highly disadvantageous position. 
And the notion of this prisoner's dilemma, what has made this such a fascinating uh, subject of study for the last 70 years since it was invented in the early 1950s, is the notion that if China chooses to de-escalate, the United States should optimally choose to escalate. And if China chooses to escalate, well, then clearly the U.S. should also choose to escalate. Lo and behold, no matter what China does, the U.S. preferred action is escalation. And similarly, if the United States de-escalates, China should escalate because that gives China its hegemonic advantage. And if the United States escalates, then certainly China has to match that. And so no matter what the United States does, China should escalate as well. So the famous result of this game, as it's called, is that the dominant strategy for both sides is escalation. And the paradox is that the result is quite miserable. Both sides escalate. Both sides build their arms, the tensions, maybe even war. Nobody wins from that. Everybody loses. And yet this is the dominant strategy. And we end up here, the so-called Nash Equilibrium. The idea of a Nash Equilibrium named after John Nash is that one takes, one makes one's own strategy taking as given the strategy of the other. And so in this case, no matter what China does, the U.S. best strategy is to be tough. And similarly for China, and here's where we end up. And lo and behold, we have a mess globally. And so the fact that this is an equilibrium in some sense is a paradox or certainly a problem. Now, what kind of problem? a problem of the following sort. If you actually have normal people play this game, mind you, that's not economists or or economic students, they will more or less end up at de-escalation because of two things. One, that looks better. Why don't we end up there? And second, because... In normal life circumstances, the two parties will talk to each other and say, you know, if we follow that, what did they, what did the professor tell us in class? Is a Nash equilibrium? Nash equilibrium. Yeah, if we do that, we're going to end up as a mess. So why don't we cooperate and both win? And so what we find experimentally in two-person games, if it's played out in classrooms, or, and especially, if it's played out and you allow the participants to talk with each other, two people will normally be able to work out 
getting from this supposed equilibrium to getting to the better outcome. And one of the great issues of study for the last 40 years in economics is why doesn't our game theory work right? Because we know that people should not cooperate. That's the rational thing to do. And yet people cooperate. What's the matter with people? That's the economist's view of this. By the way, if you give this to nursing students, they all cooperate. If you give it to economic students, they pretty much all escalate because they were trained to do so. So there is such thing in this world as trained incapacity. <laughs> and it is very interesting that this is not an equilibrium in a sense we would consider in equilibrium, but in realist international affairs, this is considered the, the only realistic outcome. Of course we have to have peace, but peace through strength. We're not going to be suckers. We're going to have peace through strength. And if peace through strength on both sides happens to lead to war, that's a shame. But strength on both sides is the, considered the only rational outcome. How do we get to the better equilibrium in a conceptual sense and in practice? A few ways. First, human beings have moral guideposts. And actually, they feel bad being here if they have promised to be here. They feel guilty, actually, if the, both parties agree to de-escalate, but then one cheats. Okay, there are many other ways to reach an outcome like that. Uh, there can be treaties. There can be third-party enforcement. There can be a multilateral framework in which these two parties agree. There can be reputational costs of choosing here rather than choosing the cooperative approach. What experience show, I'm sorry, what clinical uh, trials show is that perhaps the single most important way to avoid this trap of deciding what to do based on each action and realizing that this is the so-called dominant or Nash strategy is for the two sides to speak with each other because then they can work out that this is more a paradox than a true equilibrium in the point of view of well-being. And so in practical uh, applications of this trial, uh, this game, Communication, even non-binding communication, meaning both sides promise to be here and then understand they play and both could end up cheating for the advantage. Prior communication has a decisive benefit for reaching the cooperative outcome. So this, I want to say, is uh, for me still the basic paradigm that 
we have huge gains for cooperation in this world across all countries, but especially the two largest countries, the two largest emitters of greenhouse gases, the two largest drivers of climate change, the two uh, largest military forces in the world, the two major financial powers of the world now. And all of those lead to massive gains of cooperation and massive threats of conflict. And the core lesson is we should speak with each other and find ways to build that cooperation. It's not so complicated. Incidentally, how did we get to this game theory? I'm not sure, but it is probably the case. John Nash, uh, who invented this, is probably uh, on the Asperger spectrum. Uh, Historically, you know, he's the beautiful mind uh, in the famous movie. His idea of games is interactions without communication. And in the Prisoner's Dilemma story in the 1950s, remember how odd it is. The two prisoners are each encouraged to cheat on the other one, but how? They're locked in separate rooms. So to make The Prisoner's Dilemma a story of game theory, communication was blocked. What's strange about economics as a field is this was taken as normal. Rather than saying, that's an interesting but little bizarre story, professor, the students say, yes, rationality, we cheat, uh, and, uh, or we escalate. And that, I'm afraid, is how we have trained generations of our foreign policy experts in the United States. So American policymakers assume that Chinese actions are fixed and that they are hostile. This was a story a few days ago in the Washington Post. The headline was, In Advance of the Climate Summit, Tension Among Biden Aides on China Policy. Because John Kerry, the climate envoy, was saying, we stop being so mean to the Chinese. But the White House advisor, Jake Sullivan, was more skeptical that the United States alone can coax China into reducing emissions. And then... A senior advisor says anonymously, they're going to make their decisions based on their national interest, said a senior administration official, dismissing the idea of cooperation. This is a thoroughly illogical statement. What is the national interest? It depends. It depends if we have cooperation. It depends on what the United States does. It's not true to say China will decide on its national interest irrespective of us because that's a nonsensical notion that China's national interest is defined independently of our actions. But that is from a senior White House advisor. But let me show you what passes for foreign policy in the United States now. This is from the National Security Strategy of the United States, December 2017. This is our formal foreign policy. This has not been updated yet. China and Russia challenge American power, influence, and interests 
attempting to erode American security and prosperity. So the official doctrine is that China is out to erode American prosperity. They are determined to make economies less free and less fair to grow their militaries and to control information and data to repress their societies and expand their influence. These competitions require the United States to rethink the policies of the past two decades, policies based on the assumption that engagement with rivals and their inclusion in international institutions and global commerce would turn them into benign actors and trustworthy partners. For the most part, this premise turned out to be wrong. Conclusion, China and Russia want to shape a world antithetical to U.S. values. Not contrary, not not in favor, but antithetical to U.S. values and interests. And interests. China seeks to displace the United States in the Indo-Pacific region, expand the reaches of its state-driven economic model, and reorder the region in its favor. Russia seeks to restore its great power status and establish spheres of influence near its borders. Then in 2018, it is increasingly clear that China and Russia want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model, gaining veto authority over other nations' economic, diplomatic, and security decisions. Now, why is this the present view of the United States? It's obvious that it is because of the uh, major historical swing of economic history. In 1820, Asia had about 50% of world output. Europe, if I remember correctly, roughly about 25%, and the United States, perhaps 5% at the beginning of the 19th century. This beautiful picture, which I will make sure that we can distribute afterwards, uh, would show you that in the course of the 19th century, as Europe industrialized and the rest of the world did not, and as Europe increasingly encroached on Asia through imperial wars and imperial rule, Asia's share of world output declined precipitously, while Europe and America's share of world output rose markedly. And so by the end of the 19th century, we had a North Atlantic world. Of course, it was politically at that point mostly a British world. The British Empire was the dominant power of the world. It ruled the seas. It had possessions in all parts of the world. It constituted the largest uh, power uh, in the world, adding up its imperial possessions by far though it was already eclipsed in absolute size by the U.S. US GDP. In the first half of the 20th century, of course, the world suffered multiple calamities, the worst in history in absolute destructiveness, World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II. 
During that period, actually, Asia was brought into complete penury. China suffered civil wars, the invasion of Japan, followed by more civil war, so that by the end of World War II, Asia's share of world output was no longer half of the world, but Asia's share had declined to about 20% of world output in the aggregate, with 60% of the world's population at the time. So one-third of the average income of the world. By 1948, the United States, or in this case, uh, North America, meaning Canada and the United States, was at about 30% of world output. And so the U.S. was the, of course, the dominant power. Europe, including the former Soviet Union, so Europe was divided, not as a single force, but Europe as a whole was at about 40% of GDP. And if you add the North America and Europe together, the share of the North Atlantic in the world was still about 70% of world output. Look at what has happened since then. The U.S. is shown here. The share of the United States in world output has declined from about 30% to, uh, actually, today, to about 16% of world output. So the share of the United States in the world has declined by half. Asia, which is this line, of course, started to achieve remarkable recovery after World War II. First, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and then after 1978, China, which followed the same East Asian development model. And by 2004 here, uh, had uh, already uh, reestablished something around 50% of world output. We can look uh, uh, in a uh, better way at the next graph at this point. In 1980, the Western nations, meaning the European Union, U.S., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, had about 60% of world output. By 2019, that had declined to about 30%. East Asia alone, China, Japan, Korea, and ASEAN, had overtaken the United States, European Union, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, as a larger economic unit. And of course, what is the most uh, challenging and grating on the U.S. is this, that China itself, in absolute size, has overtaken the United States in size of economy measured at so-called international prices. That's an important, uh, an important uh, distinction uh, to make and to keep in mind. Measured in dollar prices, China is still a smaller economy, Measured at a common set of international prices, China is a significantly 
larger economy now than the United States. These are IMF figures. Now, one very important, actually fundamentally important point to keep in mind, China, of course, is more than four times the population of the United States, 1.4 billion people compared to 330 million in the United States. So the fact that China is larger simply means that China's per capita GDP is more than one-fourth of the United States. It's actually about one-third of the U.S. in per-person terms. China, U.S. GDP now is about $65,000 per person. China's GDP is about $17,500 per person. China is still a middle-income developing country with a very big population. And the fact that it's a little bit less than one-third of the U.S., but four times the population, means that it's roughly four-thirds the absolute size of the United States. So China became a larger economy, but still, in per capita terms, a poorer economy. But to add the salt to the wound or the insult or the fear of the United States or this notion that China is out to get the United States, which is now the prevailing doctrine of the United States, China is having a dramatic surge of technological capacity because they have invested massively in science, technology, and higher education producing hundreds of thousands of PhDs a year with a massive focus on the basic engineering and science fields. And this is wonderful, in my view. Smart policy, proper economic development strategy, and I believe a major contributor to human well-being because China's technologies are increasingly what we need to solve global problems. For example, China is the low-cost producer in the world of photovoltaics. China is the low-cost producer of wind turbines. China is the low-cost producer of, uh, of, of uh, long-distance high-voltage transmission grids. And all of this is a huge advantage in uh, our work with my wife, China is the low-cost discoverer and producer of the best cure for malaria uh, and has saved millions and millions of lives through artemisinin-based treatments that was development of a Chinese traditional herb, Qinghuasu, identifying the active uh, molecular ingredients, artemisinin, and saving vast numbers of lives around the world. That's what technological progress enables. So my view is that the nature of our bilateral relationship is, of course, a prisoner's dilemma kind of strategy. One can understand that there are huge gains from cooperation, but huge temptations as well. And that is why we need to agree with each other, to de-escalate, to keep away from an arms race, to keep away from flashpoints such as Taiwan, which is t 
today's leading danger in the world for global annihilation and a rapidly expanding one. You did not know it, but your lives, your family's lives, your children's and grandchildren's lives now depend on Taiwan. No thank you. And no reason for it, except that we are provoking a crisis. So what happened as China grew? The United States reacted in, I think, the worst possible way. And this, for me, was the eye-opener essay six years ago. It was an eye-opener for me because, first of all, it was by a colleague of mine at the Kennedy School, Robert Blackwell. So I had to rub my eyes many times to believe what I was reading. But let's look at it first, and then I'll tell you why it was even more of an eye-opener. Blackwell wrote for the Council on Foreign Relations six years ago, since its founding, the United States has consistently pursued a grand strategy focused on acquiring and maintaining preeminent power over various rivals, first on the North American continent, then in the Western Hemisphere, and finally globally. Preeminent power. Not cooperation, not security, but preeminent power. That's the always escalate in the prisoner's dilemma. During the Cold War, this strategy was manifested in the form of containment, which provided a unifying vision of how the United States could protect its systemic primacy, not security, primacy, as well as its security, ensure the safety of its allies and eventually enable the defeat of its adversary, the Soviet Union. Because the American effort to integrate China into the liberal international order has now generated new threats to U.S. primacy in Asia and could eventually result in a consequential challenge to American power globally, Washington needs a new grand strategy toward China that centers on balancing the rise of Chinese power rather than continuing to assist its ascendancy. So when I read this, I thought, wow, Bob, what are you thinking? We're going to contain China now? But of course, I'm very naive, ladies and gentlemen, because this was already reflecting the new foreign policy. It was just being expressed in a pamphlet at the Council on Foreign Relations. It was not a trial balloon. It was the new foreign policy. And I read to you the subsequent versions of this in U.S. official doctrine since then. China's rise must be countered, not because of American security, but because of the need of American primacy. Now, how can a country of 330 million people have primacy over a country of 1.4 billion people if both are investing in education, in infrastructure, in new technologies, in research and development? How could a country of 330 million people do that? The answer is there is no peaceful way to do that. There is only a containment strategy. A containment strategy means that China must not be allowed to develop. 
because if it does develop, primacy is impossible. Numerically, it's simple. It's too big to be allowed to develop. And so this is the genesis of why you can't speak on a Huawei phone, use Huawei 5G, engage with China in normal infrastructure development such as the Belt and Road Initiative, and why Jens Stoltenberg said last week that the new doctrine of NATO must be directed towards China. Because U.S. primacy, not security, but primacy, is threatened. I won't read all of that, except it's more insults by the United States about China, about how in many areas China's leaders seek unfair advantages, behave aggressively and coercively, and undermine the rules and values at the heart of an open and stable international system. That's Biden's doctrine. We will support China's neighbors and commercial partners in defending their rights. We will promote locally-led development to combat the manipulation of local priorities. We will support Taiwan, a leading democracy and critical economic and security partner. We have a one-China policy, which we are now steadily undermining and intending to abrogate, up to and including Biden's new doctrine of last week, saying we will defend Taiwan against an attack, which is not a U.S. doctrine, but it has become one. No vote, no debate, no discussion about how reckless this talk is. If one wants to provoke an attack against Taiwan, the best way to do it by the United States is to say we will defend Taiwan and its independence and then give vent to the independence voices in Taiwan to also abrogate the one China agreement that goes back decades between Taiwan and the PRC, incidentally, and that was part of the ROC, the Republic of China's core from 1945 onward, that there is one China. But we are now undermining that and setting in motion a slide to war. Not deliberately, but we're doing it because we're talking about the importance of defending Taiwan when that wasn't even an issue because China wasn't talking about invading Taiwan until we started talking about defending Taiwan and until President Tsai started to enunciate every kind of strange idea, including the recent one, that, China's, that Taiwan is not an Asian country. It's a Western country. That, ladies and gentlemen, is provocation. That's not safe. That's not smart. That's not prudent. That's how to construct an enemy that wasn't an enemy. So this is the one that got me really unhappy last week. Significant broadening of the alliance's objectives. Let's talk about China for a moment by looking at the United States first. 
I come from a country that has abandoned multilateralism, and not just under Trump. These are all the UN treaties of the last 40 years that have not been ratified by the United States. We don't ratify treaties anymore. Because in the U.S. Senate, it is believed that if the rest of the world agrees on something, it must be bad. It's almost proof that it's bad. The United States passed laws to protect the disabled. The other nations of the U.N. thought that was such a splendid idea, they made a treaty on disability, at which point the United States refused to ratify it, even though it was based on U.S law, and insight. Why? Because it was a UN idea. So we have not ratified the law of the sea. We have not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. We have not ratified the Convention on Biological Diversity. We have not ratified the Mine Ban Treaty. We have not ratified the Convention on Cluster Munitions. We are not a party to the International Criminal Court. And that's the U.S. side, mind you. Almost all of those, I didn't get a chance to check one by one. I will do so in the final write-up of the lecture. But China is a party to almost all of those, if not all of those. These are U.S. wars. We've not had a peaceful year, really, since 1945. The U.S. is engaged militarily all over the world. Today, it's bombs over Yemen still. It is operations in Libya, in Syria. It is operations in Somalia and other places. So this is a list of all of the wars and uh, coups that the U.S. uh, has led since World War II. In the case of China, China has not been engaged in one overseas war for the last 41 years. The last time was in Vietnam in 1979, and that was after Vietnam invaded Cambodia and China uh, invaded Vietnam for two years and then left. Since then, not one overseas war. These are U.S. military bases around the world. There are 800 of them at last count. Remember how China is trying to militarize the Indo-Pacific? I'm afraid the U.S. got a big head start. We have bases all over the South China Sea, surrounding China. And when the Biden administration opened, what was the first trip of our new defense secretary? It was to India, Australia, and Japan the so-called quad countries, because we want to tell China we surround your shipping lanes. And we have just uh, 
agreed to escalate further by providing nuclear submarines to Australia in a new expanded military alliance, AUKUS, Australia, UK, US. This is again a US provocation. And since it's nuclear submarines, it's a major escalation in the South China Sea as well. The United States exercises another kind of power, also against international law, and that is the rampant and increasingly frequent use of unilateral financial sanctions, which are, by the way, very, very powerful. You can wreck a country, drive it into poverty and hunger through a blockade of its banking system and by the threat of extraterritorial sanctions on anybody that does business with the country. So the United States has starved Venezuela during the last five years. My theory is that it was all in the interest of winning the 2020 election by Trump, because Trump could care less about Venezuela. But he was told by Marco Rubio that he could carry Florida if he could take a strong anti-Maduro stance. And so the U.S. financially blockaded Venezuela, and Venezuelan income has declined by about 75%. It's as if we went in to bomb, but you don't have to bomb. You just have to seize all of the financial assets offshore, and you have to block any kind of financial transactions with the country. We're doing that all over the world. So if one asks who upholds the international system, Please be sure to understand that China is not the relentless aggressor in this story. The United States is repeatedly, profoundly, and consistently fighting against the international system now, leaving UN agencies, fighting against meager UN budgets, failing to ratify UN agreements, going to war unilaterally against UN Security Council decisions, imposing unilateral financial sanctions, building military alliances, failing to abide by the nuclear, the uh, non-proliferation treaty, which calls on nuclear powers to denuclearize whereas the United States is entering a new generation of nuclear weapons building. So this is the problem. And it is in the interests of a grand strategy and in the belief that the only rational thing to do is to escalate, because no matter what China does, that's in our advantage. So, where does that leave us? 
the world is extremely unsettled right now because the United States actually can't lead even if it pretends to. We are 16% of the world economy now, not 32%. We do have the only world currency, but it can only be used for destruction, not for construction. The U.S. is unwilling to finance global public goods. Our aid level is one-sixth of yours in percent of national income. Norway, 1%. U.S. 0.16 of 1%. So we are selfish, divided, aggressive, militarized, non-cooperative, and interested in primacy. And NATO's going to sign on, ladies and gentlemen. Sign on to that, because after all, China's the threat. So I wanted to end by talking about theories of our current situation. We don't have a global hegemonic power anymore. The United States served that role for good and ill for three decades after World War II, hugely for the good at the beginning in establishing the international institutions, the greatest foreign policy act of the United States in history was certainly leading the development of the United Nations the UN Charter, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Then we entered into a nearly disastrous nuclear arms race, and partly on the view that there was never anything to discuss with the other side. And that brought us to within a breath of nuclear annihilation on October 26, 1962, when a series of miscalculations led to the near annihilation of the planet. Remember, the bombing bay was already uh, loaded with a nuclear-tipped submarine, and the Soviet submarine pilot had already given the order to fire when he was countermanded by a single official on his vessel in the Caribbean. And we know from the aftermath and from U.S. doctrine that had that torpedo fired, it would have been the end of the world because the U.S. doctrine was any nuclear attack would be met by a full-scale attack against the USSR, China, and Eastern Europe. And we didn't know then what we know now, which is that that would have ended life on the planet because the idea of the nuclear winter would only come another 10 years later. So that's how close we came the last time. When I was a graduate student, we read this book. The book was a brilliant essay about why the Great Depression was not solved in the 1930s, and Kindleberger's answer was because there was no 
hegemonic power to provide the global public goods to end the Great Depression. Britain was wounded. The United States was not in a leadership position. And so Kindleberger, I didn't understand it at the time, but it was mainly, in a way, a hidden defense of U.S. hegemonic primacy after World War II. Maybe not written for that purpose, but the argument was no leader, no public goods. Another idea of our time is, well, we won't have a hegemonic leader. We'll have China, the United States, European Union, other powers, India, other nuclear powers. And so we'll have a balance of power. And this is Henry Kissinger's idea, of course. The only problem with this is that it is unfortunately a myth, the idea of a balance of power. Because power doesn't stay balanced, it becomes imbalanced. And while Kissinger devoted his life to trying to recreate the worlds of Metternich and Bismarck, the fact of the matter is that when Bismarck died, no one was smart enough to keep the balance of power in Europe. And within years, an alliance system had developed, and in 1914, it brought the worst disaster that Europe had experienced in its modern history, followed by yet another disaster just a generation later. So I'm not much of a fan of balance of power theory. That's realism theory. That's we both escalate. It's not as good as cooperating, but since we both escalate, neither side gets an advantage. I see that as an invitation to an accident, an accident like August 1914 or an accident like the Cuban Missile Crisis, because I know that there is no balance. There's change, there's threat, there are stupid people, there are psychopaths. We had one as president, and we should not count on uh, a balance of power. There's another idea, of course, that's very extant now. It's even, if you read, and I don't recommend it, the comment pages in the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times, it's enough to ruin your day, by the way, if you do it in the morning. And it will keep you up all night if you do it late in the day. But it is taken for granted by the many misanthropes around the world or the people who believe that the Nash equilibrium is the only true equilibrium in the world, that of course we're going to war. Why not? Athens and Sparta did. But Athens and Sparta, one thing one can add as a footnote, both ended up in disaster. That's one footnote to uh, the Peloponnesian Wars. The other is they didn't have nuclear weapons. So this is my humble theory. Why don't we cooperate? Why don't we understand that we are not mortal enemies? That China lived through a terrible century and a half at European hands? That China is a great civilization? 
that deserves respect, study, cooperation, interaction, serious engagement, and that we have a lot to do together, and that it's urgent. China is the number one greenhouse-emitting country in the world. 28% of greenhouse gases, the United States number two at 14%. Mind you, if you do it in per capita terms, the U.S. is roughly twice China's per capita emissions. We have to work together, otherwise we will absolutely destroy the possibility of prosperity on our planet and on so many other issues. We are missing a proper doctrine of global cooperation. And I think the idea of subsidiarity is the right idea. Subsidiarity says we have many collective problems to solve. Solve them at the most local possible level. But then understand that some of our problems are truly global. COVID is a global problem. We cannot end COVID country by country. We need everybody to receive immunizations. Climate change is a global problem. We cannot end climate change country by country, and so forth. So in the doctrine of subsidiarity, we recognize public goods at the global level, at the regional level, at the national level, at the local level, at the neighborhood level, and inside the household. And we commit to cooperating collectively at the right levels in the right ways, because cooperation beats war, and it really beats nuclear war. So, so many critical areas for cooperation to end global poverty, protect the environment, resist inequality, which requires global agreements on taxation, manage complicated demographic change, and maintain peace. And the Sustainable Development Goals are our generation's plea for the world we want, and every one of them requires collective action at multiple levels from global to local. None can be achieved without global cooperation. We need now to avoid the slide that we are experiencing. And believe me, it's happening. And you may not feel it in Norway because this is a wonderful country with sane politics and nice people. Come to the United States for a moment and see the risks. Let me point out one reason, by the way, why China will not be the new hegemon. It doesn't, not only do we not, are we not going to have a new hegemonic power, not only is China not going to take over the world, not only is it too poor to do so, not only is it too small to do so, not only does it have a few obstacles of other parts of the world that actually don't want China to run the world, and not only has it never been part of China's statecraft ever in 2,000 years to imagine running the world, ever, in any way, including today, 
But I just want to point out a little bit of demography. This is East Asia, the share of the world population this decade. Right now, China is about 18% of the world population because it's roughly 1.4 billion people out of roughly 8 billion in the world. By the end of this century, China will have not 1.4 billion, but 1 billion people. And the world will have perhaps 10 or 11 billion people, depending on how we manage it, should and could have 8 or even 7.5 billion people in a proper world where children get education and families decide on fertility based on their uh, education levels and uh, access to decent jobs and so forth. But the point is, Asia will be around 10, East Asia and China will be 10% of the world population, not even 18%. And China is going to be one of the oldest societies in the world with a median age of perhaps 57 or 58. I have a theorem. I'm not sure. It's actually a hypothesis. I don't believe people over 58 want to run the world. I think they want quiet, actually. That's my own feeling. I don't want to run the world. I don't want to see it blow up. And I don't think that China is going to be in a position to run the world. Africa, by the way, is the line that is soaring upward. And that, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that on the current trajectory, Africa's population will rise fourfold from a bit over a billion to more than four billion. It should not do so for Africa's own well-being. It would not do so if we cooperated globally to ensure that every young child in Africa is in school and is able to stay in school until at least upper secondary education because that is the way to achieve development and the fertility transition, in which case that curve would peak and start to come down all for Africa's own good and for world stability and sustainability as well. But this is just to say don't lose sleep about China taking over the world. If they do, it will be octogenarians doing it, and I don't expect that to be the case. Let me conclude by saying we are gifted by one very fortunate circumstance in our time, which makes us not quite unique because it's been true for the last 75 years, but the generations since 1945 really have something special compared to all of humanity that went before, and that is we have the United Nations. It's a brilliant idea. Of course, it was a brilliant idea when it was the League of Nations, but it was stillborn. It was a brilliant idea. Franklin Roosevelt, truly our greatest president by far, I think, and it is our best hope because what the UN Charter calls for is peace, cooperation, sustainable development, 
and the international rule of law as a basis for cooperation. And this is our instrument to actually solve the problems that we face. There's also one other important point about the UN that is very special. It not only has a political charter, it has a moral charter, a most remarkable moral charter. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is one of the most stunning achievements of humanity because it showed that it was possible across all cultures, of course, in the context of the Holocaust and of the devastation of two world wars, to see that there is a common ethics for all humanity. And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 is a wondrous base for us to build. It's signed by China, it's signed by the United States, it's signed by all the UN member countries. Brilliantly, it's not only, quote unquote, only about political and civil rights, it's about economic rights, cultural rights, social rights. It provides a body of law, it provides a system of engagement. It provides a basis, ladies and gentlemen, for us to live together prosperously, decently, and peacefully in the 21st century. Thank you very much. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. You can also find a full video of the address there, including the conversation afterward with Sun Heidi Seba. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trickhauer. Additional editing and recording help from different media. Music by Mark